Welcome back to What in the World. My name is Ryan Rosenthal, joined as always by my co-host Andre Ganoella. And Andre, a lot has gone on. We are at the 100 days mark for the Biden administration. Uh, let's kind of start with the State of the Union. So any any big takeaways, Andre? Well, it wasn't necessarily State of the Union as much as it was sort of like a progress check, uh, a speech to Congress, right? I think there were only 200 folks in attendance there because of the COVID restrictions. I think uh, the relevant senators and Congress people got their seats via a lottery. And uh, President Biden's speech was very, very ambitious, uh, both on the domestic lens and in the foreign policy lens. But something that I had noticed in the analyses uh, after the speech, especially uh, from uh, writers at CNN and the New York Times, was how much China figured into this, how much uh, Biden emphasized the nature of democracy, the ability of a democracy to succeed in meeting all of these challenges. Uh, for, For example, there was a famous, there was a quote where he said, hey, there's no reason we can't build wind turbines in Pittsburgh rather than Beijing, right? Talking about building America, but also sort of putting that thing in there like, hey, China might be out competing us as well in these things. And we need to enact these domestic policies to beat China. We need to enact these economic policies to beat China and so on. Ryan, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, yeah, basically, you know, what what he said is that the U.S. and China are neck and neck in the fight to win the 21st century. And it's not only this speech, but most of of the public comments that are related to the economy, national security, uh, just kind of, you know, domestic projects have been basically like with this guise of we need to compete with China. We need to shore up our, our domestic economy, our domestic workforce, create better social programs in order to better compete. It's all about this competition with China. It's not necessarily saying that China is, is you know, the enemy. They're not trying to frame it in that way. It's more so about strategic competition. Uh, and so I think, again, the big takeaways, as you said, Andre, is, is China. But they also mentioned Russia, uh, talked about you know, the, the not escalating with Russia, but responding in kind, proportionality. You know, you you and I have been talking week over week about Alexei Navalny. There's no mention of Navalny in the speech, which is not surprising. Nor was there mention of the the buildup of troops on the uh, Ukrainian border, and that's right one to probably prepare for a a summit between uh, Presidents Biden and Putin in the coming weeks or maybe months. Who knows when that's going to happen? Uh, and so, I mean, really, we're we're seeing this this focus on one uh, making sure that the United States is better prepared at home. To deal with all these issues from COVID uh, to just you know small businesses uh, and these basically this FDR style kind of reinvigoration of what America is uh, and with that I mean again with, with the ending the war in Afghanistan so bring those troops home there um, and this kind of reshift on on terrorism not branding it as a fight against Islamic extremism but more so the the domestic threats at home from from white supremacists and the far right and so. We're seeing these huge shifts um, in the Biden administration's kind of overview, their worldview. Uh, and it, it's certainly, I mean, you know, unsurprising given, you know, what the administration has said uh, in the first hundred days. It's just it'll be interesting to see whether or not they maintain this consistency as we go forward. Yeah. And I mean, I just want to hit again on that point that 
I mean, by I think Biden. I mean, there was this great CNN article I was reading today uh, by Jeremy Diamond, and there was also a great a New York Times piece today by David Sanger that sort of both echoed the same points. Uh, President Biden sort of believes that he is a defender of democracy, not necessarily the, the idea that he had to spread democracy throughout the world, like say George Bush, but more so the fact that democracy is under attack. I mean, he said that the Capitol riots were the most significant attack on democracy since the Civil War, namely democracy being that this was an attack on an actual democratic process, being the ratification of the electors for the presidential election. He said that, quote, they look at the images of the mob that assaulted the Capitol as proof that the sun is setting on American democracy, but they're wrong. We had to prove democracy still works, that our government still works, and that we can deliver for our people, end quote. And he said of President Xi that President Xi is deadly earnest on becoming the most significant, consequential nation in the world, China becoming that consequential nation in the world. So, I mean, like, it's basically, it's it's certainly like, you know, will democracy succeed? And I think that is the benchmark for the Biden administration right now. That is how they're viewing all of these challenges. That is how they're framing all these big challenges in this lens of strategic competition with China, with Russia, but really, I mean, with China. I mean, especially with all of these, the technological competition. I mean, I think Sanger had noted in his piece in the New York Times that, you know, back in the 1960s, it was the space, the space race, right? President Kennedy said, we will get someone to the moon. Uh, Sanger noted in the New York Times that for Biden, it's, you know, the race to get semiconductors produced, the race to build, you know, more advanced technologies, more advanced hardware, software, and to ensure that, you know, we can compete with China effectively in that tech realm, which is certainly the the technological race that we are going to be in in this country. So, yeah, I mean, this is not I mean, the, the China threat is a newer one, but the, this type of rhetoric we've seen time and time again, right? This is just a, a new face to these underlying problems that we've seen over years. I mean, presidents in the Cold War said the same, very similar things about the Soviet Union. And so now he's just using that, these, sim, these similar rhetorical tools to kind of boost up the domestic support for these domestic programs and a, a foreign policy in, in their worldview. And so well, I certainly agree that he's absolutely right in the, these threats. I mean, this this isn't some crazy revelation, at least in my mind, but it's it's necessary to point it out. Yeah, for sure. And like, I mean, it was a very interesting speech on a domestic front. Of course, it certainly was a repudiation of uh, Ronald Reagan's, you know, government is not the solution. Government is the problem. Uh, certainly, that's in a domestic stuff. So, I mean, we won't really get into that much. But uh, it's just very interesting. You know, foreign policy starts at home the foreign policy starts at home and uh it's very interesting and it sort it certainly gives that vibe that you know quote unquote america is back as you know president biden has said time and time and time again and uh, also sort of shoring up you know confidence with american allies and so on R- ryan did he say anything specifically about uh like you know confidence building and so on um, yes. I, so again, from from day one, the, the president has talked about how we need to rebuild America's alliances, um, and I mean, this speech is again committed to to maintaining democracy. And a part of that is 
uh, the the relationships we have with our allies abroad, particularly those who are you know westernized democracies, and so primarily in in Europe and in parts of Asia, these countries are crucial in in maintaining both democracy worldwide, but also democracy at home. You mentioned that you know the Biden administration isn't really looking to quote unquote spread democracy, but they want to have it maintained or at least um, promoted internally with all these different countries, so that we can have a safer world. And so by pushing back against countries like China and Russia, we need our allies to bolster their democracy efforts in their own countries and also try to do so around the globe so that we don't allow democracy to kind of fade away, which we've seen this fading of democracy uh, certainly over the past you know, decade, I would say. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, there's, there's this focus on, on NATO. Uh, there's also this focus on building relationships with our, our Asian partners with you know the quad we we've been talking about on the podcast a lot and so more form, formal relationships is probably going to be pursued by the Biden administration and so again i i think this will be a, a huge a point for the state department and the defense department in particular is to ensuring deeper engagement and deeper cooperation with our allies yeah basically i mean it'll be very interesting to see how this sort of ensues uh, with president biden and like how many of these goals, you know, are accomplished in, in practicality. But uh, I thought it was a very interesting speech. I thought it was a very ambitious speech. I thought it was a very good speech. And uh, I mean, kudos to that speechwriter for sort of uh, combining all of these different priorities into sort of one theme, the theme of democracy and, you know, the advance of democracy. Also, he mentioned the Indo-Pacific. He mentioned, I was sort of scrolling through this transcript as Ryan, you were talking. I was paying attention to you, but I was also scrolling through this transcript to get the quote. But he said, quote, I also told President Xi that we will maintain a strong relationship in the Indo-Pacific, just as we do for NATO and Europe, not to start a conflict, but to prevent one. I told him what I said to many world leaders, that America will not back away from our commitments, our commitments to human rights and our fundamental freedom and our alliances. Uh, no responsible American president could remain silent when basic human rights are being so blatantly violated and so on. So it was, it's very interesting. And he also said about Putin that, you know, he said, we, quote, are not going to seek escalation, but their actions will have consequences if they turned out to be true. Uh, very interesting, very interesting. Certainly, he's trying to, you know, give off a tough image as well. Rationally tough, pragmatically tough. And the pivot to the Indo-Pacific. He said, hey, the Indo-Pacific is a big region of interest. And like, I mean, we've talked about this time and time again. Pivot to the Indo-Pacific from Europe. He just said the Indo-Pacific is as important as Europe, as NATO. And I think that is very notable. Absolutely. I mean, again, you know, Europe is certainly important, but the threats in Europe, uh, I think, are, you know, realistically not as grave or as significant as those that are creeping up in Asia. Right. The China threat far outweighs the Russia threat at the moment, at least in my mind. Uh, And so this kind of reorientation towards Asia is an important one. And you can only do that by having confidence building measures with your your allies in the region. And right now, I mean, we have a handful, but uh, in order to really have a good deterrent and compete properly with China, we need to shore up those relationships. Yeah. And I think the the last bit I sort of want to hit on with the speech is that he did certainly cover 
uh, ending, quote, endless wars in Afghanistan. He called it the forever war. Uh, he basically said, you know, we did the job uh, and now we're out. You know, we wanted to get the terrorists who hit us on 9-11. We went and we got bin Laden and we've like basically eliminated a significant portion of the threat in Afghanistan. But that, but that you know, the terrorists aren't just in Afghanistan. They're all over the place. He said, quote, the Al-Qaeda and ISIS are in Yemen. They're in Syria. They're in Somalia. They're in Africa. And they're in the Middle East. And they're elsewhere. And, you know, he said, we'll still be, you know, watching that. We'll be vigilant to it. And then he also said, quote, we won't ignore what our intelligence agents have determined to be the most lethal terrorist threat to our homeland today. White supremacy is terrorism. So certainly uh, domestic terrorism is going to be key. Domestic terrorism is going to be a big priority. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, I, th- I think, you know, given the, the appointments and the, the, the early materials we've seen come out of DHS uh, and other uh, members of the intelligence community have, have demonstrated that this is a big threat. They're taking it incredibly seriously. Uh, and we, we're seeing these threats in many of our ally countries, too, with their own domestic white supremacist or far right uh, organizations, notably in Germany uh, and in France. And so, again, this isn't just a problem in the United States. This is a problem in many Western democracies. Absolutely. Absolutely. Ryan, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on this speech. We spent a good amount of time on it already. But what else is happening? I know Alexei Navalny has ended his uh, hunger strike. Uh, he will live another day to stay in prison, it seems. Yeah, so he... Uh, unfortunately for him, in terms of the staying in prison part. Right. You you and I have been talking about uh, Navalny for quite a long time. Uh, and, you know, when we were talking about it last week, it seemed like, I mean, presumably he was going to die just because, I mean, he hadn't eaten for weeks. Uh, and, and so, but now, you know, his hunger strike has ended. The government is providing him, allowed his uh, doctors to see him. So he's getting some medical treatment. He actually uh, had a court appearance very recently. And I mean, he looked, I mean, terrible. I mean, he basically looked like a skeleton, skin and bones. And so, um, but uh, I, I will say it's, it's nice that he is now getting medical attention. Uh, as we've said time and time again, his death has a significant impact. Uh, and again, it is, he's, you know, he's a person, you don't want any you know person to be subjected to such treatment. And so, but uh as at the current state, and you know, Navalny is is, is going to live another day. Um, we'll see how long that actually lasts. But I think most notably is that his anti-corruption organization uh, is undergoing significant scrutiny by the Russian government. Their offices, which are normally raided, you know, every so often, have been raided yet again. the The Russian government is pursuing designations uh, of his organizations as foreign agents, which will restrict many of their actions within Russia. This is part of a, a more broader, uh, a broader effort by the Russian government to kind of clamp down on these type of organizations, these civil society organizations. And so while Navalny is alive, his ability to conduct these operations and those of his allies may be very, very limited in the near future. Yeah. And how and how hard is his organization being hit by the Kremlin? Like, I mean, I saw something recently that like, you know, they are sort of being fractured a bit by the Kremlin steps and sort of the Putin government and so on. What's that look like? Well, yeah, I mean, not only are you having the government pursue formal sort of regulations and um, legislation to kind of clamp down, but you're also seeing mass arrests of people who are involved. 
And so across Russia, you have civil society organizers and those who are within Navalny's network being arrested, being detained, being beaten. Uh, many of them you know, don't return back to their homes. Uh, and so what this does is not only does it remove the manpower that is necessary to do this type of work, but also instills fear in the people who do this type of work. And so, I mean, it's, it's an incredibly risky job. And in a country like Russia, where the security apparatus is so powerful, uh, you're, you're not going to win in the short term. And so, again, this has a significant effect on their, their capabilities. Mm, absolutely. Ryan, I want to move into uh, a bit south, into South Asia, uh, to a situation now that, I mean, I th- always thought for the past year would be the worst case scenario. It is now proving to be the worst case scenario. This is a situation of India and its second wave of COVID infections. I mean, my God, like, I mean, I don't even know what the death toll is. Ryan, what are we looking at? Well, I saw that there were, you know, close to 400,000 cases on, on Thursday, uh, which is the day we're recording it, uh, and, and over 3,600 deaths. And that they're worried that, I mean, that it's just going to keep climbing and climbing and climbing. I think the most notable a statistic that I've seen is that only 2%, 2% of the Indian population is fully vaccinated. Uh, and and there, I mean, the effort was to vaccinate millions and millions and millions of Indians. Uh, there are 940 million adult Indians. That is just an astounding number. I mean, India is a massive country and has a huge population. And I mean, it's such, a, such an effort to be able to actually vaccinate all these people and so what we're seeing is that, one, you don't have enough supply, right? The production is, be- is becoming increasingly difficult in India. You have many different companies producing the vaccine, many different types of vaccines, uh, but you really just don't have the production capacity, nor do you have the distribution network in place to be able to get these vaccines to, to many Indians, right? You have these, these very big cities, um, you know, like like New Delhi, where you have many, many people, but a lot of Indians live in the countryside where the infrastructure isn't sufficient enough to be able to get vaccines out to them, right? The distribution is the hardest part in India. Yeah. So you can, I mean, it's not just about getting the vaccines, which they need a lot of vaccines, don't get me wrong, but how are you going to get those vaccines into arms, right? Like, I mean, that's the big problem. And I mean, India has on Thursday today, we're recording past 18 million total COVID cases, 3,645 new deaths on Thursday, and three nearly 380,000 new infections on Thursday. That's nuts. That's nuts. And I mean, you think, you know, New York City or Chicago is dense. Good Lord, you haven't been to Delhi or Bombay, Mumbai. Those cities are extremely dense, extremely dense. So, I mean, as a result, you can see COVID being able to spread at a much quicker pace. And uh, and I mean, yeah, we have these official numbers from the government, but I think everyone sort of uh, uh, come to this consensus that the official numbers are bogus, that they're like the real number of deaths are at least three times uh, what we're seeing right now, because and you know how they can tell? They can tell by the cremations that are going on because they're cremating bodies like like crazy, like crazy. And I mean, and I mean, I mean, I think this is sort of speaks to a trend uh, of populist nationalist leaders bungling their COVID responses. Narendra Modi, he was holding campaign rallies. I think he was he had this three million person 
Hindu pilgrimage or something in India. No masks. Everyone was just sort of, you know, returning to normalcy. Uh, and, and, you know, I'm seeing this in a smaller situation, on a smaller sort of level with Sri Lanka as well, the uh, country I was born in, uh, where my family is, extended family, of course. Uh, the rich don't give a crap. I mean, the rich are just like going out and like having a good time. And then these situations are like popping up and good Lord, it's it's terrible. It is terrible. And it's not like, you know, we, we've seen spikes in Brazil. Uh, we saw how the US bungled the response in the last administration. Uh, there is a trend, I think, of nationalist leaders bungling these responses, bungling it to just this extreme level of sheer incompetence. I mean, on top of all this, you have vaccine skepticism and misinformation, not only in India, but around the world. Uh, and, and I think India is a particularly interesting case just because social media has been used to spread this misinformation. And so not only do you have these, these challenges of actually getting out to people, but getting them to accept it is a whole other problem. And so uh, uh, India is, is going to get hit really hard. They've already been hit so hard. And again, just given their massive population, all the other challenges that we've we've you know outlined, uh, this this won't be good. I mean, it won't be good for India. I mean, the potential for strains to erupt and and spread uh, is is very scary. Yeah, so and I mean, like there was a bit of a little bit of controversy, I think, uh, regarding uh, U.S. aid for India because the Biden administration initially was sort of mum on the situation of like you know India getting foreign aid, especially like vaccines and so on. I think primarily because I think they were trying to figure it out behind the scenes. <laughs> they were trying to figure out like, wh what are we going to do behind the scenes? So like, yeah, they're actually working behind the scenes, but they were not having a public face until I think all the foreign policy uh, officials in the Biden administration started tweeting out, you know, uh, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Uh, the first flights actually that carrying this COVID-19 assistance for India actually just flew out of the United States last night. And uh, apparently the White House, they said that they're sending about $100 million in supplies, which includes, you know, uh, oxygen tanks and so on. So, yeah, and, and there is this, there is this actually this, uh, this controversy around releasing the patents uh, for some of these vaccines uh, so that they can start manufacturing these vaccines in India, in these low-income countries. Uh, Something that certainly won't make the the pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer, Moderna, and the others uh, too happy. Ryan, what do you know about that? Well, so again, the, the, this type of the, the patents and the underlying technologies um, for for these vaccines are are important, right? They're intellectual property, and uh, these companies develop them uh, in secrecy in order to one have you know leverage in in the market when they go to market with them. But particularly when you're looking at the cases of developing developing them in countries. Um, you have countries like the United States, like Russia, like China, trying to maintain control over this uh, over this IP in order to kind of preserve it as you know America's vaccine or China's vaccine or Russia's vaccine, right? And so when you start giving it to developing countries, then you're kind of giving up your IP, right? You, <laughs> India and China, and there's there's kind of you know not really, you know, unsaid, you know, rules just because IP is, you know, regulated internationally uh, and with, you know, international law. But 
you know, they don't they don't maintain the same IP protections that we see within the United States. And so uh, once it's out there, it's gone. It's as good as gone. And they're producing it just like they would in the United States. And so uh, the United States and similar countries have to, to protect uh, these crucial technologies so that they can be prepared and, ha- and not have it, you know, fall into not necessarily the wrong hands, but not your own hands. And I mean, I mean, the real controversy behind this is like, is there a moral imperative to suspend, you know, the IPs to get these vaccines into arms? And I, I think that is the, that's one of the biggest arguments that's being had. I mean, you've seen it on social media. And certainly it's existing in the Biden administration, because I think uh, the press secretary and the president themselves are trying to deliberate on whether is it more useful to produce the vaccine in the U.S. with the current manufacturing capabilities or to send it or to have, you know, India or other low income countries produce these uh, these vaccines in their manufacturing. And obviously, I think those manufacturing uh, plants would need to have. I think some sort of approval and so on. And certainly these companies are a bit wary in terms of their trust levels uh, for these low income countries to uh, produce these vaccines. But I mean, the fact is, you need to get more shots in arms. You need to get more shots in arms in India, especially in many of these densely populated countries, whether or not it's about suspending IPs, whether or not it's about giving a lot of foreign aid to improve their infrastructure. Uh, we got to do something, right? We got to do something. So I think that's at the core of uh, the deliberations that are happening right now. A lot of the arguments that are being had on what is the nature of the foreign aid that should be going to India and other countries similar to India or who, God forbid, will be similar to India in terms of their their, uh, situations with COVID. Yeah. I mean, again, there's there's a lot to talk about on this issue. And you know, India, again, is a, a very successful country economically, and they have a huge production capacity. So we'll, it'll be very interesting to see uh, wh- how this kind of actually pans out and what role the United States plays. And again, there's this other issue of vaccine diplomacy comp- competing with China, right? Uh, just because China's attempted to get in there and India has been, you know, very trepidatious and has said, we don't, we don't want your vaccine. We don't want your help. We're India. Um, they said that? I, I mean, not... They, it, they rejected China's aid and they didn't participate in a kind of a vaccine diplomacy forum with China. And so that's basically a rejection in my mind, whether or not it's, you know, a formal no, it's just a hey, say, hey, we're not participating. Um, and so you, you, you have that issue as well. And so it looks like the U.S. will hopefully try to swoop in and provide assistance and again, deepen the relationship with India, because as we've been talking about, not only from you know the the COVID standpoint, but just broader, uh, India is a crucial partner, and it we need to deepen our relationship and our cooperation with India. I mean, we need. I I think vaccine diplomacy. I mean, one. I think there's a moral imperative to get those vaccines out there. I mean, we have so many people, buffoons, I might add, who are refusing to take the vaccine on this bogus stuff. And I mean, you know, honestly, it is a lot of misinformation that's being spread about the vaccines and their efficacy and so on. But the fact that we have so many people who are declining to take the vaccine and people in India are literally dying to get the vaccine, it's just, it's the most absurd thing in the world. And it speaks to, you know, our our privilege in the United States to be able to, you know, get those vaccines for free from our government. Uh, and I honestly think, like, I mean, for example, the AstraZeneca surplus. Uh, I don't think the AstraZeneca vaccine 
was actually a prude. Uh, Ryan, uh, why don't you fact check me uh, while I keep speaking uh, on the AstraZeneca vaccine? But I'm not sure if it was approved, actually. And the U.S., I think the U.S. should send more and more of its vaccines to these low-income countries. The Quad has already said they're going to produce, I think, $2 billion for Southeast Asia. But they need to send these vaccines now to some of these countries because China and Russia are already playing that vaccine diplomacy game. And the longer we drag our feet, the more soft power China and Russia is going to have with so many regions of interest throughout the world. There is a moral imperative, but there is also the strategic implication of U.S. influence, U.S. image throughout the world. It is, so, Andre, just to answer your question, it's not approved. Still not approved. It's not approved, but we still have those, we have those vaccines, apparently. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, again, you know, even if it's not approved in the United States, I'm not necessarily you know, sure how it works, but maybe those could be sent overseas if, if they can't be approved here. Uh, each country has their own. Um, regulations and 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 kind of procedures for approving vaccines, and so it might. The Biden administration apparently confirmed this week that they want to share around 60 million doses of AstraZeneca's vaccine with other countries. Uh, a lot. I, I think once uh, 60 million. <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> once I think they get that approval from the FDA. But it's a, it's a huge issue. And, you know, maybe we'll do an episode on vaccine diplomacy or something. We'll have to find a, anyone listening. If you have someone who can speak to this, uh, reach out to us and let us know, uh, preferably a senior level official, an expert. Like, let us know if there's anyone in this realm you'd love to, you know, hear about and we'll, you know, try to get them on. I agree. It's a great, it's a very important topic, an interesting one as well. And so, Andre, that is all the time we have this week. Um, everyone, be sure to stay tuned uh, for our Monday episode. We have a very, very fascinating uh, conversation with Professor Stephen Walt of, of Harvard. Uh, we talk about a variety of things. He is, I mean, an, a leading international scholar uh, in international relations. And so, uh, and also, you know, make sure to check out our previous episodes. Uh, we we uh, have a 100 days episode coming out uh, very soon. And um, as, as always, uh, you know, let us know your feedback. We're always, you know, kind of looking to improve the podcast. Send us an email, reach out to us on social media. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, and make sure to rate, uh, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. Uh, thank you once again. Uh, my name is Ryan Rosenthal. My name is Andre Ganoela. Stay tuned for next week's episodes. Bye. Bye.